hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Today's guest earned her degree in history from the Ohio State University, but she got as close to majoring in Vikings as she possibly could, and her study of Norse myths and Icelandic sagas became her writing inspiration. She lives in Cleveland, Ohio. The Witch's Heart is her debut novel. It's my pleasure to welcome Genevieve Gornacek. Genevieve, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, absolutely. And congratulations on the amazing success you've been having with your debut novel. It has got tons of brilliant Goodreads reviews. I saw that it made those finals uh, with the Goodreads Choice Awards. It's all over the place and it seems to be selling like hotcakes. And that is a fairy tale ending for most debut novelists. So tell us a bit about that. Oh my gosh, I am so lucky. Uh, I never in my wildest dreams could have imagined this. It was a, a Norse mythology fan fiction I wrote in my dorm room as an undergrad 10 years ago. So, so really, I, I can't even believe it. Okay, so, so 10 years ago, right? So now you need to take us back. Yes. 
Here's the thing. Most people, most debut novelists, when you interview them, they fall into one of two categories. One, they wrote this book ages ago, set it aside because life happened uh, and then came back to it ages afterwards. Or you, you kind of find they one down were like, to hell with this. I'm sitting down and writing the damn book. And then they knock it out and there it goes. So it sounds like you are in the long time ago, life got in the way part. So, so tell us a bit about that. So when I wrote it, I, I, it was really a, a passion project. It was something I did for me just to get it out of my system. Uh, and I would open it every, every year or so and just look through it, kind of tweak some things. But it was really like the book of my heart, really. And in the meantime, I had written two other, I had started writing two other series. So like two books of one series, two books of another series. And when I graduated from, got my undergrad degree, um, I started querying agents with those two books. And that lasted like five years, hundreds of rejections. Very typical. It takes a lot of rejection. Even after you get published, there's still a lot of rejection. So yeah, I kind of kept the witch's heart close to my chest because I was like, this is like my book and and I'm afraid to query it because I feel like this is my last ace up my sleeve, you know? Like if, if it's not this, it's not going to be any book. But I didn't think there was a market for it. It was so like, oh, witch lives in exile from the gods and is a hermit and just kind of does her thing. Well, then Circe came out in 2018. And at that point, I had written The Witch's Heart seven years ago. So I was like, oh, so I started querying and the rest was history. I've actually got goosebumps as we're chatting because this is something that I tell emerging writers all the time because they'll say, I have this book. And, you know, editors at publishing houses and agents always say, I want something completely different, but it can't be too different, right? Mm -hmm. Because if it's too different, then they don't know where in the market to place it. Yep. Right. So that, so they were saying, I want completely different. But then if yours is too different, then it gets rejected because it's too different. Mm -hmm. And I say to these writers, it's incredibly frustrating. But here's the thing. Trends change. What readers mm -hmm. want change. And something that maybe nobody knows where to place it now in two or three or five years is going to be mm -hmm. the thing that every single agent and editor has on their manuscript wish list. Mm -hmm. And that's must have been what happened with you. Yeah, I I'm I'm so glad that things happened the way they did. I'm glad that things happened on their own time. And that is something that I tell writers when they ask me for advice. You know, they're like, I've been rejected so many times. Um, I'm never gonna find an agent, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, it will happen for you like when it's meant to happen. You know, I you just gotta keep going. You can't give up. Um, and you have to write what is in your heart and not what the market wants. Cause as you said, the market changes. So if you pour your heart and soul into this book, it will find a home eventually. Yeah. And, and publishing is so slow. So that if you suddenly looked at Cersei and went, oh, now this is what people want. So now I'm going to write this mm -hmm. book. I mean, yep. it took you how long to write that book? So then you would have sat down, written the book, and by then the whole trend would have played itself out. <laughs> how much did the, did the book change in the last 10 years? When you saw Cersei and you pulled this out, did you do a rewrite on it? Or was it like, nope, it's good to go? Nope, I did not rewrite it. Uh, I just kind of took it because I'm a perfectionist and I had made those tweaks over the years. So I was like, it's happening. I'm sending it out. I kid you not, after five years of trying, I think that my agent might have just refreshed her inbox at that exact moment because I got a response asking for a full manuscript within five minutes of me sending her a query letter. Like I just, I, I, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> That never happens. It is. It's like the Cinderella story of, you know, being a writer and finding an agent. Like, mm -hmm. forget the damn prince, man. We don't need the princes. Right. We need the 
agents who are going to be holding out our glass slipper, which is our manuscript, and being like, right. well, you're the one who wrote this. I want to represent this. This is what we right. want. Yes. And and did you and your agent speak about it afterwards? Like, did she, who, I'm assuming it's a she. Is it yes. a, right. So, so for our listeners, can you tell us who your agent is? Because they're always trying to figure out who to query based on what they're busy working on. My agent is Realliance uh, with HG Literary. I, I think she might be closed to queries right now, but keep her keep her in mind. I know she was closed a while ago, but I, I haven't checked in a while. So, Was she just like one agent you queried or was she part of a whole bunch of agents you queried? Two, why was she on your list? And three, did you speak about it afterwards, how serendipitous it was that she immediately responded to you? I had a spreadsheet of agents that I was sending it out to. Uh, I had columns like for the agent agency, how many pages they wanted because every agency is different or every agent's different, how many, what they want you to submit at first and their usual response time. So like only respond if interested or will respond in six weeks if interested or, you know, so to keep all that straight. So I sent out maybe like 24 queries that day. It's a good idea to not send your entire list out at once because inevitably you will find a typo uh, in your query that you just sent out to 100 agents. Um, and and you generally find it three seconds after you send it oh, to yes. everybody. Yes. Oh, yes. there was a typo in the first sentence of my query letter to my agent, my now agent. So like... <laughs> Yeah. Um, and, and the other thing is, is that if you send them all out at once, uh, you don't have a chance to see if it's working or not. So like if you get, okay, I sent out 12, I got all 12 rejections. How can I tweak this to maybe get their attention? Personalizing it is always good saying why you're querying them. And that is the reason that I that my agent was on my list is that uh, she had mentioned in her agent bio uh, liking stories about witches. And so I was like, so since you like stories about witches... Maybe you'd be interested in my novel, The Witch's Heart. And I feel like you hit a double whammy there as well with the story because witches are extremely popular at the moment and reimagining of mythology as well. So it's like it was the perfect storm of things that you were writing about. Yeah. And there were a lot of mythology retellings that that came out this year alone. And I don't know if like my publisher knew about that and planned it this way because I was originally a June 2020 debut. And I got before the pandemic even happened, I got pushed back. Now I'm very grateful for that because debuting at the beginning of the pandemic, like my heart goes out to those authors. Because by the time I debuted a whole almost a year later, um, we had kind of settled into this routine of Zoom launches and Instagram lives and stuff. But it must have been so hard at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, really tough for writers then. But again, you know, um, it was tough for a ton of people who debuted even when you debuted. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, this book stood out. And I know you say it's it's luck. And I firmly believe a lot of success in publishing is luck. But it's also tenacity. It's also hard work. It's also you refusing to give up on the story that you loved so much. You know, it could have been easy for you to just go, okay, well, I've had tons of rejections on these other books. So, you know, I'm a bad writer. I'm not going to do this. And you didn't do that either. So so after your agent came back to you and offered representation, were there other agents who then came back later who offered representation? Or was it, you know, just with this this one agent? So uh, once my agent made the offer and she's so nice and she had to guide me through a lot of this because I didn't know what to do with an offer. What am I supposed to do with an offer? This is wild. So she was like, you know, uh, just let the other agents know if you've gotten any other requests 
like, just let them know that you did have an offer and, you know, that might bump it to nearer to the top of their reading pile. And at the time I did have somebody else who had a partial manuscript. And when I let her know that I had an offer, she said, okay, uh, well, you know, good luck. Like, I'm sure that that'll be a great fit for you. So, and I did email the rest of them because I had only sent out that small batch. So I did email the rest of them except for a couple. And then what's funny is that I actually did get a rejection, like the, the week that my book deal was announced. <laughs> so that, <laughs> like, thanks. <laughs> that's hilarious. But it also just makes you laugh because normally rejections make you want to weep mm. and you get it and you're like, yeah, well, thanks. But you know, I don't need you because I have a book deal. <laughs> <laughs> And I've heard that happen to a ton of people too, because, you know, agents get so many emails, so, so, so many emails. So it might be six months before you hear back from them. And that was the case because between uh, me getting the offer of representation from my agent and me getting my book deal was about six months. I started querying in 2014 for my debut novel. And there are some agents I still haven't heard back from. So I'm thinking (laughs) any day now. (laughs) So after you got your agent, did you work together on revisions or was she like, this is good to go? And then she sent it out to publishers. How did that part of the cycle go? We did uh, work on revising it together. Yes. We went back and forth a little bit because during her initial read, there were some things that she was like, "Mm, you should change this. You should think about this a little bit more. So yeah, I was pretty proud of the product that that she had sent out on submission, even though it changed drastically after that. (laughs) Yeah. And that's the thing. So writers think, okay, I've now got an agent. I don't have to revise. Or they think, oh, I now have an editor. I'm not going to have to do revisions. Mm. And it's just, it's constant, (laughs) constant rewrites. Yes. So when she sent it out to publishers, were there a whole bunch of publishers she sent it out to, or was she like, I have a feeling about these particular ones? How did, how did that go? So I, I'm not sure how she selected them, but she did, she, she gave me the option of telling me who she was sending it to. And she's like, some authors don't want to know. They don't want to know who I'm sending it to. They don't want to know about the rejections, but I could, I could let you know who I'm submitting it to. I can let you know what they say when they get back to me. And I said, I want to know kind of, you know, just in case. Um, So she, you know, redacted the names, uh, of course, um, and sent me back rejection after rejection. She would batch them. Like she wouldn't send me an email every day. Like, hey, we got rejected. But she did send me like a list and a little paragraph of of why. Yeah, yeah, when when that, when it was my time for that, I'm always like, send me the rejections as they come in. I want to know what they said. Um, Not so that I can get a voodoo doll and stick pins in it. (laughs) Right. But because you never know what's useful in there, right? right? And if three editors come back with the same issue, Mm -hmm. then you know, okay, if I'm going to do rewrites, then these are things I need to start thinking about. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. It's uh, yours. Your your story just makes me so happy. And and I hope it's going to be an inspiration to our listeners because I'm finding it hugely inspiring. So let's talk about the book itself. Epic in scope, such an amazing story. How do you go from taking this Norse mythology and, you know, condensing it into this this reimagining? Was it something that while you were studying this, you were always thinking about it in more microcosmic terms? Tell us, take us through that. So I I started this when I when I was in undergrad uh, taking a class on Norse mythology. So I wrote The Witch's Heart for National Novel Writing Month or NaNoWriMo in 2011. Uh, at the same time that I should have been working on my term paper about Angerboda and her connections with other uh, mysterious female figures in Norse mythology. So. <laughs> 
yeah, time well was, spent. Time well yeah, spent. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But you know, I was such I was in that mindset. Like I was Norse mythology's number one fan during that time, just really digging in. And my goal with the witch's heart was to write a story that could conceivably fit into the background of the myths without changing anything. So like you're seeing like the main myths over here and then you pan to Angerboda's cave and like what's happening there. So I didn't want to change anything. I kind of wanted to, to, you know, peer through the curtain into backstage and like what is happening. Um, Cause we don't, we hardly know anything about Angerboda. And if you, if you gave a thousand different writers, the task of writing Angerboda story, you're going to get a thousand different stories stories because we don't know anything about her. Um, and actually my friend, uh, who was in a, a, some kind of Norse Facebook group, um, the week my book came out, she like posted about it and somebody was like, Oh, I was just writing a story about Angerboda. And I was like, tell her to do it. Tell her to do it. Tell her to do it. <laughs> like, it's going to be a totally, totally different it, story. It's exactly, not like, yeah, yeah, exactly. And some people, some people do, um, I've read, you know, Norse mythology, some some fiction where they do play around with Ragnarok. Maybe Ragnarok doesn't happen, um, but I always knew that that was going to be how the story ended. It was just a matter of kind of making it more satisfying than just everybody dies. <laughs> <laughs> if a man wrote it, everybody dies. If a woman writes it, it's like, no, 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 no. Um, so something else that you've done phenomenally well in this book and that so many emerging writers struggle with is excellent dialogue. This is a book that is dialogue heavy mm-hmm. and, you know, people tend to be hit or miss, especially debut authors with dialogue. Mm-hmm. How Was it something that you always had an affinity for? Have you got a natural ear for it? Like for me, I love dialogue, but because I love eavesdropping, you don't want to sit next to me in an airport or a coffee shop or whatever, because mm-hmm. I'm going to be listening to your conversations. So, and I think that helps make me better at dialogue. So for mm-hmm. you, how did you approach all of that? I just really enjoy writing dialogue. I like writing the banter. I know that some people thought it was too dialogue heavy, but I think that that really is just a matter of taste. I see if I open a book and it's just thick paragraphs after thick paragraphs, I'm like, I don't want to read this anymore. Unless it's a medieval Icelandic saga, which has like one line of dialogue, like per page, maybe if you're lucky. Other than that, it's just genealogies. (laughs) But but yeah, because there's a lot of things that that I'd rather have a character say rather than me explain it in the in the text in the prose. Yeah. But but also, you know, a lot of writers try and avoid info dumps, and mm-hmm. so they'll do dialogue, but they right. don't do it well. So it feels like an info dump <laughs> in dialogue, which you yeah. didn't do. So you had that banter, you mm-hmm. had characters interacting with each other, but it all sounded very organic, very natural. So I feel like perhaps it's something you just have a natural affinity for. And, I, and I'm the same as you. If I open a book and it's just this wall of words, it's like, if it's description, I don't care. I'm going to skim past it because I'm going to imagine shit the way I want to anyway. <laughs> right. um, and there's only so much of that that I can handle. And then I want to get to dialogue. What are characters interacting? What are they saying to each mm-hmm. other? Yep. Yep. I, that That's something that I really enjoy. And um, I think it gives you like a better feel for the characters and maybe helps you connect a little bit more. That's something that I'm struggling with in the book, the project that I'm working on right now. You know, I, I have sent like a couple parts of it to my agent and she's like, this is really tell don't showy right now. Like, do you think that that's something that you could, she's like, I know you're still figuring things out with it. 
Um, and that's something that you could go back and do. So don't worry about it right now, but just keep it in mind. So yeah, there's a lot of things where I like went back and was like, okay, could this be better as a conversation to establish this instead of me just telling you about it? Yeah. Yeah. The show versus tell is a big issue, but again, you know, the first draft for an author is the author telling themselves the story. Yes. It's, oh, it's yes. you you figuring out who the hell the characters are, what's happening, et cetera, et cetera. So I find in every first draft, it tends to be more telling than showing. And then later, once you know what the story is, who the characters are, you're mm-hmm. able to dramatize it more because you're just more immersed in it. Right, exactly. And did you plot the story out ahead of time? Or is it because you kind of knew the mythology that you were wanting to work around? You were able to kind of pants knowing that there was a structure to it? Or or how did you figure that out? Yes, I absolutely pantsed my way through it, but I still had the the bare bones, you know, of the mythology in the back of my head. Um, so that was super helpful. But like, you know, starting this next one from scratch. Uh, I was like, I I am a pantser through and through because every time I try to outline the characters, just change it. Like I can't control what they're going to do. <laughs> Mutiny. Just, Mutiny yeah, exactly. is what happens. I'm so exactly. glad to hear it because people think I'm strange when I say my characters don't behave that way. The minute I tell them that something's going to happen, they're like, oh, really? We'll mm-hmm. see about that. And then there's right. mutiny. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes like, I, I don't even know how they feel until they're in that moment. Um, so actually what I did for this book is I saw, I think it was either Holly Black or Victoria Lee or Holly Black via <laughs> Victoria Lee. So an author that I know uh, posted something on Instagram saying, instead of doing like a bullet pointed outline and making it, you know, maybe 10,000 words, no, maybe like 7,000 words, 5,000 words, a short bulleted outline, maybe you could try making like a narrative outline that's maybe closer to 15, 20,000 words. That's just like saying what happens and trying to capture those like emotional beats, not bullet points, maybe just like paragraphs of, and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. And that was so helpful for me, like beyond helpful. Cause I am not an outliner. So this, this really helped me kind of like capture what was happening in the story. Amazing. And and for your next book, I know authors generally don't like speaking about it. Is it, is it also going to be in, in uh, terms of mythology again or, or witches or is it something completely different? It is definitely going to be in the realm of Vikingness and witches. Um, but I can't actually say more than that right now. I'm sorry. No, absolutely. I understand completely. Our time is almost up, Genevieve. I just wanted to ask in terms of advice you have to writers working in this genre, whether it's, you know, um, fantasy, whether it's mythology, what advice do you have for them in terms of, you know, achieving success in such a competitive genre? I would say that you should be reading in your genre, but also reading outside your genre. I read a ton across across the board. Um, and it really, I think that that helps you bring new things in, into the genre. So that's my advice, number one. Number two, just don't give up. I know it sounds cheesy, but like, um, I'm glad that this didn't happen a moment before it happened for me. I was not ready. I'm so glad that my first two books did not get picked up by agents. They will never see the light of day. You know, I was disappointed back then, but like, I'm just so glad that this happened when it did. So your time will come. Just don't give up. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. 
Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. 
this is just a reminder that we've got the virtual retreat coming up the last weekend of January and you definitely don't want to be missing out on that. For more details, go to my website, biancamaray.com, look at the courses, services and retreats tab and you'll find the full lineup there and the link on where to sign up for that. And also a reminder that our Kofi supporters get access to exclusive additional content on our Kofi page every Thursday. So if you would like access to that, Again, look at the website, biancamaray.com, and you'll find a link there on how to become a Kofi supporter. Today's guest is a Canadian writer, editor, trainer, and entrepreneur. She has contributed to various print and digital publications, including Children's Book Insider, Boltface, Talkspace, and Timmins Today. She regularly teaches workshops on creative writing, editing, marketing, and business communications. She's also had poetry published by Veranda Literary Journal and Creative Talents United. Her book, Spoiler Alert, Satisfying Story Endings and How to Craft Them, is slated for release next year. Children's book writers can get a preview of the book's contents via writing blueprints, Finish Big, Mastering the Five Kidlet Story Endings. It's my pleasure to welcome Jess Trudell. Jess, hi, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Could you take a minute before we dive into the story endings matrix, could you tell us a bit about Writing Community? Yeah, writingcommunity.ca is a website that I started uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic, actually. I organized and was running a writer's guild in my local area for several years. Um, and then when the pandemic hit, everything went digital. And uh, we so we we decided to take writingcommunity.ca uh, as the um, the online version of that that guild. Essentially, we still run local events uh, like the Northern Ontario Book Fair and things like that. Um, but right now we publish a lot of great resources on the website, like a regular schedule of uh, pitch parties for Twitter, lists of uh, agents and uh, editors and uh, publishers worldwide, that sort of thing. So, so can anyone just sort of follow you there on the website and have access to that? Or is it a community that they specifically need, need to join? No, nope, it is a, a wide open website. Anybody can access it. Just go to writingcommunity.ca and uh, you can access all the different resources. That sounds amazing. Absolutely amazing. So, you know, we're always talking on the podcast how um, people are like, well, I, I can't afford to pay for this or I don't have the resources to, you know, get this or whatever. But there are so many free resources out there. You just need to know about them and you need to sign up for them and, you know, just just become aware of it. But so, so this sounds like an amazing resource. Can you tell us now about the story endings matrix from its conception, why you felt it was necessary, kind of what you've done and how it's going to help writers? Absolutely. So I have a, a business background. I'm an entrepreneur um, and a lot of my uh, early beginnings uh, with writing professionally were for businesses. I wrote a lot of strategic plans, business plans, uh, grant proposals, things like that, which involved a lot of strategic things. Um, so I've found that applying that strategic thinking to creative writing actually helps organize um, my thoughts and organize information, uh, which is really important to me because I have ADHD. So my uh, frenetic thoughts uh, kind of need that little extra bit of organization. So um, I use matrixes a lot to organize my thoughts. Uh, so the story endings matrix is just one of many different types of matrices I've developed. One matrix people might already be familiar with is the, the SWOT analysis. Publishers use that a lot to analyze the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats of a manuscript. 
JavaScript. Um, so that's just an example of, of what a matrix is and how it can be used. It's essentially just columns and rows to organize yeah, yeah. information. Yeah. Can you just like sort of break down that particular one for us? Because I, I think it's something not many of our listeners are aware of. And certainly it's something that'll be useful within, you know, their own work, no matter what they're working on. Yeah, for sure. So uh, the SWOT analysis is something that um, business professionals use to develop uh, a strategic plan um, and analyze the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats of their business. But publishers also use the SWOT analysis to analyze manuscripts. So when a manuscript comes through um, and it gets past that initial uh, slush pile check, um, and now they need to actually decide whether or not they're going to publish it, usually they have their interns or, or uh, their editors do what's called this SWOT analysis. So it's a very simple matrix. It's two columns and two rows. Um, and you've got your strengths and your weaknesses, and then you've got your opportunities and your threats. Um, and what they're basically looking at is your um, your internal things that you can work on within the manuscript. So those are your strengths and your weaknesses. So those are internal to your manuscript. So that might be, um, you know, the story needs more development. That might be a weakness or um, it has a really great hook. So that might be a strength. And those are internal things that you have control of and that you can work on versus your threats and your opportunities. Those are external to your manuscript. So you don't have any really any control over them, but you can kind of mitigate them. So they might identify, for example, that you use slavery as a theme in your book and they might say that's that's not good that and that might offend a lot of people and it's it's not for so we should change that like you you should we should probably do something to edit that out or um, mitigate the the outcomes of that or um, they might identify that uh, the some of the themes that you're using are kind of not current so they might say okay how can we update this to make it more of a current relevant idea right so those are kind of external things um, that you might be able to change something within your manuscript to fix or or not so that's they use this matrix to help identify those kind of issues and improve the manuscript or if they don't feel like they have the time or energy to to do that uh those updates to the manuscript then they might suggest a, a revise and resubmit or just or just deny the, the manuscript right so if you're aware that publishers are using this SWOT analysis then you can use it yourself to analyze your own manuscript and maybe identify those problems in advance um, and maybe make a little bit further along in the acquisitions process. Yeah, absolutely. Do they ever consider external threats? So for example, perhaps a book came out recently that's just too similar or no? Is it all things that are internal to the actual story? Nope. The, the, the threats and the opportunities are all considered external. So definitely that would be a factor if there's already a book out there or a lot of books out there, you know, if the market is flooded with a certain type of book, that would certainly be a consideration. Wonderful. Okay, so back then to the story endings matrix. Okay, perfect. So the story endings matrix is another matrix. It's, it's a very similar in the simplicity of it. So it's got columns and rows, uh, just like the SWOT analysis. Um, but in this case, the columns and rows are looking at the ending of a story. So the really important parts of the ending of a story essentially is your story goal. Is your story goal accomplished or not? And what is the outcome of that? Because when the character either accomplishes or doesn't accomplish their goal, that's not usually the end of the story. Usually there's something else that happens afterwards. That's the outcome. That's whether or not the world is better off because they accomplished their goal or not, or 
um, if their lives improve as a result of it, right? So there's all kinds of different stories, but all of them fit into this matrix, depending on whether or not the goal is accomplished or whether or not the outcome is, is net positive or net negative. So that's what the matrix is, is designed to do is to help you kind of analyze your ending um, and and try to maybe try a different type of ending, right? If something's just not working, then you can go, okay, well, right now I have the goal as accomplished and that's a positive ending. This is a, basically a happily ever after. Um, do I want to try something different? Maybe I want to have a little bit of a tragic turnabout instead. So that's how the story ending endings matrix work. And, you know, readers get so worked up about endings. So here's the thing. On the podcast, we constantly are carrying on about beginnings, how strong your beginning needs to be, how strong those first pages and opening chapter needs to be. But I don't think we focus enough on endings. And I realized today, especially how important endings are to readers, because I um, recommended The Push um, by Ashley Audrain to my dog walker, who uh, was looking after Muggle. And uh, so I picked Muggle up this morning and we were talking about the book and she was really upset about the ending because she wanted a very different kind of ending. And I said, no, the ending was perfect. It was perfect for the novel. It was perfect for what the author was trying to do. I'm not going to give away spoilers for those of you who haven't read it yet. Go and read it. And then, you know, you can let us know as well. But how often, Jessica, does it happen that an author has a goal for their ending? So, for example, they might say, this is my goal, and they actually achieve the goal. But people come back, perhaps editors or agents or readers, beta readers, and say, oh, that's not the ending we wanted. So we actually want you to change that. Yeah, it, it does happen a lot. And that's one of the reasons I decided I wanted to write a whole book on this subject, because we do spend so much time focusing on the opening, you know, how to hook an agent with your, you know, your opening chapter and how, right? Like we spend so much time on that and we don't spend nearly enough time talking about those endings. The only time we do talk about those endings is when a, an ending happens that really upsets people and then we talk about it, but it's always shrouded in this kind of negativity. So we never really have a production conversation about it, right? So I really wanted to kind of write this book to have a positive talk about how to write that ending right off the hop and get it right the first time. And that's not to say that you'll ever make everybody happy. It's impossible to make everybody happy, right? So no matter what, you're going to have people that are going to be like, oh, well, I didn't like that ending. But as long as that ending is justifiable based on the, the character development and the plot progression and, and all of that, then um, your your avid readers are going to are going to justify it for you. You don't have to do it. You don't have to go out there and engage in the reviews. You really shouldn't do that. But um, as long as you've just you've made it justifiable in the writing, then your loyal fans are going to go out there and they're going to they're going to make sure everyone's clear on exactly why that was the right ending. Yeah. And I just think about something like uh, Game of Thrones and I'm going to give spoilers, people, because there's been enough time now. If you haven't done well, watched it now. You know, that's not my problem. But like I had <laughs> screaming matches with friends about the end of Game of Thrones. And I had friends who were furious about the fact that Khaleesi went a bit deranged and that she was killing everyone. And they were like, this reflects badly on women and, you know, uh, women leaders. And she uh, they should have given her a much better, more triumphant kind of ending. And I was like, were well, you not paying attention? She was not listening to her advisors. She was becoming cruel and vindictive and power hungry. So that was the only possible ending. And we still mm -hmm. disagree about it. But it just, again, is to show you how strongly people feel 
about the endings of things because they have spent 80,000 words when it's a novel or however many years of their life when it's a TV show invested in this so that they can get to the end because that's why we're all in it. We as writers, our characters, our readers, everybody's in it for the the grand finale ending. And so Mm -hmm. if you don't get that right, you really are going to either let make people feel let down or kind of upset them. Yeah. So so But on that same vein, before we move on with the Game of Thrones thing, I think one of the problems was that the ending made perfect sense with the progression of season eight, was it? But it didn't make sense with the progression of the first seven seasons. And I think that's one of the reasons, right? So you have to, your ending has to make sense for the entirety of the story. And in this case, they had eight seasons to contend with, right? So. Yeah, listen, there were storylines there they could have taken out. The whole, you know, the dogs and Tyrion and the the girl has no name. They could have spent way less time on those storylines. <laughs> right. But I mean, we could, exactly. we could just sit for hours bitching about that show, but we won't. Um, so again, let that be a, a lesson to you about your subplots and your secondary characters along the way. So if our listeners are interested in working through this matrix, et cetera, do they have to wait for next year when the book comes out? Are there resources for them online? Do you work with writers to help them with their endings? Tell us a bit more about all of that. Yes, absolutely. So I'm a developmental editor, so I definitely work with uh, authors to um, develop their stories from beginning to end. Um, I like to do um, a lot of reverse outlining and reverse brainstorming um, to kind of uh, get those juices flowing in the opposite direction. Um, Because I think we, again, that's something we don't do often enough. And I find when people start at the beginning and then they try to work their way towards the end, they end up meandering a little bit. Whereas if you start at the end and work your way backwards, you always have that, that final goal and outcome in mind. It helps keep things a little more cohesive. But yeah, as a as a, an editor, a developmental editor, and a coach, I do work with authors uh, to help them develop their stories, and uh, especially with those endings, because that's a really important thing to me. Um, and in the meantime, while they're they're waiting for the book to come out, um, there is that workshop that you mentioned in the intro. Uh, I did a workshop with uh, Children's Book Insider uh, or WritingBlueprints.com, which is their subsidiary. Um, so I did that workshop. It was it was catered to uh, children's books, but the the information is useful for any type of storyteller. So if people don't want to wait for the book, that's perfectly fine. If you go to writingblueprints.com and look for the finish big webinar, um, you can you can find out all about it right now. Amazing. And I have said many times on the podcast that I'm more pantser than what I am plotter. But even though I don't really know my plot and where things are going. I always have a bit of an idea of what my ending is going to be, something to work towards. And as Jessica said, something to work back from. Because remember, if you have this character arc and everything comes together at the end and this is who your character is at the end of your book, then you need to make sure that that character arc is consistent throughout so that when they have this aha moment, when they change and either become this better person or a happier person or or like Khaleesi, a more vindictive person, uh, it makes sense based on everything that we've seen coming beforehand. So, uh, Jess, if they want to reach out to you, what's the best sort of email address? Or um, And can you give us your socials as well, where they can find you on social media? Absolutely. I'm most active on Twitter, Jess underscore Trudell on Twitter. Um, that's where they'll find the pitch party schedule. Always, It's always my pinned post on uh, on Twitter. Um, but that's the most active place that I am. Um, of course, with the writingcommunity.ca website, uh, they'll find me there. They can subscribe there. And uh, if they want to reach out to me via email, Jess at writingcommunity.ca. That's Jess with one S. 
um, is the best place to reach me. Wonderful. And then the book that will be coming out next year is, spoiler alert, Satisfying Story Endings and How to Craft Them. So look out for that. We will definitely be promoting it on our socials when the book does come out so that you know where to get it from. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.